Welcome to HCMA Off the Record, your behind-the-scenes look and listen into the world of emergency management. This podcast is brought to you by Muriel Bowser, Mayor of Washington, D.C., and the District of Columbia Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency. From preparedness tips to intra-agency coordination to advice from the men and women responsible for protecting the district, HCMA Off the Record shares it all. Whether you're an EM nerd like us or learning about emergency management for the first time, come along for the ride. Hello and welcome back to HCMA Off the Record podcast episode 15. Wow, I'm excited for today. This is going to be uh, something special. My name is Brad Belzac, chairman of the D.C. government's Homeland Security Commission. I'll be your host for today's episode where we have former Deputy U.S. Fire Administrator Dr. Dennis O'Neill as our guest. Welcome, Dennis. Brad, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Dr. O'Neill, Dennis, Denny, as they say, uh, yep. on, the, on the front lines. Um, we're going to get inside his mind today, learn about how he rose the ranks to become the highest ranked career fire official with the U.S. government. So he was, as of last January, Dennis was the number one career official as the U.S. Deputy Fire Administrator. We're going to hear lessons from battling uh, a range of catastrophic events, his crisis leadership, getting some pro tips from the field, also the halls of Washington, D.C., two very different places. Um, In addition to hearing, uh, we're going to briefly discuss our commission's latest report, the Homeland Security Commission's latest report. As noted earlier, um, a quick blurb about us. The Homeland Security Commission was created out of legislation Washington, D.C. City Council legislation post 9-11 to advise the mayor and the rest of D.C. government on security and preparedness in the district. Through an annual report, we sent to the mayor and and the city council, as well as it's available to the public. This commission is comprised of seven homeland security experts with a range of expertises and backgrounds, a really incredible body of, of professionals. Now, without further ado, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome Dr. Dennis O'Neill, um, to discuss at the outset, Dr. Neal retired last January 2020 as the highest ranked, as I said before, career f- fire official, um, as the deputy fire administrator under the U.S. Fire Administration, under FEMA, under the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. A mouthful, but that's the organization. Um, in this role, uh, Dr. Neal oversaw the National Fire National Emergency Training Center, the U.S. Fire Academy. Um, he trained upwards of what, 140,000 students, Dr. Neal, annually? uh, Yeah, in classes and online. Incredible, incredible. Um, But he really started his career out as a U.S. Army radio operator, uh, (laughs) which is a very different spot from where you're at right now. Um, Then from there, was in the Army, um, and then left after, uh, I think, what, three years to pursue? Two years. years. Okay. And then uh, started at Jersey City Fire Department, Rose the rank from a line firefighter to the chief of the department. Um, saw a lot, which we're going to get into. Uh, and really, I, I would say paved the way for where you are today. Um, um, jumping ahead to 2005, and I will say full disclosure for the audience, um, that's where I had the pl- privilege of getting to know you, to work for you, to learn from you. Uh, and we've stayed uh, close ever since. Where you, um, during Hurricane Katrina, uh, right after uh, – the category five hit, you were sent down by the FEMA director, the secretary of Homeland security then um, to Georgia first. Right. So we are just 
Really lucky to have you here, sir. Um, let's just get into it. Let's get tactical. Um, you know, the audience is a comprised of, of emergency service workers, firefighters at every rank, um, and maybe just so, and civilians as well, all levels. So um, I think I think I think really just to kick it off, what drew you to the field? What were some defining moments that you can talk about that that kind of just continue along your path? Because a lot of folks just leave and go and do other things. You kept going right up the chain. Um, and what what was critical? You think maybe a couple things that you learned back then that really paved the way for where you are today. Brett, thanks. Um, a couple of things that helped along the way. Uh, one is that I, I guess that you follow your mom's advice, and that's to hang out with the smart kids. And the, it's really the kind of the people that you the group that you hang out with, that you socialize with, uh, that you work with, um, that show you the way, give you the opportunity to learn, provide input. Uh, you can learn from their mistakes as well. Um, but I found there were four elements to making sure that you were ready. One was education, and that's the formal education through colleges and universities. The second was training, and depending upon what profession you're pursuing, EMS, fire, police, uh, emergency management, there are courses available to you in your profession that you're aware of. The third is experience, and that's taking what you know, education, and what you can do, which is training, and putting them together to work on existing problems or new problems. And then finally, continuing education, staying current in your field. And you can't have one area that you're very good at, like a lot of experience with no education or training, or a lot of training without any education or experience. So it's really a proper balance of the all four. And then the fifth and the final one is that when an opportunity comes, and it will, when that opportunity comes, you've got to be prepared to be uncomfortable going into whatever new role you're given an opportunity to pursue. Um, a lot of times people are very comfortable in doing what they're doing. If they're a police officer and they're in a SWAT team, they don't want to get promoted to sergeant because they'd have to leave the SWAT team. If they're a battalion chief in the fire department and they have a very busy battalion, they don't want to go to deputy chief because they want to stay busy as a battalion chief. So you've got to leave your area of comfort or be prepared to leave your area of comfort and go into an area of discomfort if you want to pursue the next step. Now you got, just listening to you, I'm thinking about a couple trajectories of some of my uh, friends that I admire. Um, some never got a master's and succeeded. They rose, they continue to rise. You know, will they plateau? I don't know, but they either had a two-year degree, they had a four-year degree, um, you know, and, and some had a master's and you had, you got your, your doctorate. Why, why did you get your doctorate? Um, principally because I knew I was in a very small pond and education would make you a bigger fish. So um, there weren't that many fire officers in, during my time, uh, even with master's degrees. Uh, but the earned doctorate was going to do a couple of things. First of all, it was an interest of mine, education. Yep. Uh, secondly, I was looking for a career after I retired to, you know, what was I going to do with that doctorate would give me a credential 
in the education field or the consulting field or the management field uh, that would give me that opportunity. So, you know, those are the two principal reasons. I like to think that's interesting, you know, because because you're you're a lot of us, you know, I have emergency response background, a policy background, uh, my 20 year career. But I struggled. I didn't have mentors. I mean, I I know I guess I needed them. I thought I knew I wanted to go one direction. Um, but did you have did you have mentors? Did you have people in your 20s that and in your 30s? Like, talk about that. I mean, sure. So you're in your 20s, your 30s, and you're really deciding on a career. Um, many of us decided to get married or, you know, buy a home and do those kinds of things. So you're establishing that baseline for the rest of your life. You know, all the things that you're going to be doing. And um, sometimes you're going to have children. And all of those things are important. Um, and they have to be considered when you're pursuing whatever you decide to pursue. Um, I learned going up uh, in, in the professional side of my life, I watched people and I watched who was successful and who was unsuccessful. And I really learned more from the people who were unsuccessful, um, that, that, constantly, that were unsuccessful, that made mistakes, that didn't perhaps had an opportunity to go to school or had an opportunity for extra training. And they decided that they were going to do something else. So um, th- I learned that if you do get those opportunities, you need to take them. If you see some extra training, you need to grab it. Now, not so much always for the to hang out with the smart kids. You're going to meet a new group of smart kids. You're going to learn about opportunities. You're going to meet new people. You're going to learn new tricks that, going back to your original organization, those people may not have. That makes sense. I mean, I guess, you know, I like to call them, you know, my board directors, you know, my personal board directors. And they've carried me in my 20s, my 30s, now my 40s. Um, They're not just professional. So, like, let's not think to the audience. They're not just people in the firehouse or in the or in the the your Homeland Security Emergency Management Agency where you work your public safety office. They could be family friends that are in business, but have influenced you. And they're they're an array, you know, and you're and you take them with you and you, you you go you may go to them for jobs you may go to them for family advice but they're your board and mm-hmm. uh, I think that's that's key um, so let's get really tactical for a second your first fire let's let's go back we're going back a couple of years your first fire you, you get the call what goes through your mind once you're leaving the firehouse to when you get on scene to when you go inside and you're breaching the house well, first of all, is an officer usually with you? And, um, you know, a, a typical police officer will make more hours in eight, more decisions, excuse me, in an eight hour work shift than the average firefighter will make in a year because that firefighter is part of a team led by a captain where the police officer is typically out on his or her own on a patrol. So um, it was going through, going to that first fire, and it was only, I was only in a firehouse for about a half an hour. Um, but I was watching my colleagues, the more senior people on the rig, and I was waiting, you know, making sure that my gear was on right, and you know, that I was going through my head what what training I had and what I had to do. You know, when I got there, the the captain gave us orders to do it, and we did it. 
Um, and I, in that time, it was it was a three alarm fire. It was a mattress store on fire, but there were apartments above the store. And um, there was a lot of smoke, of course, and climbing up a fire escape. And uh, the firefighter I was with climbed in the window and he handed out. And I thought it was, a, unfortunately, I thought it was a dead child, but it was an overcome dog. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't see it in the smoke. And of course, then the dog came to when he got out. It was just a fiasco. But, you know, I climbed in the window and, and um, you know, we started looking around for people. But, you know, it was, um, I think, good because I wasn't sitting sitting in the firehouse wondering what it was going to be like. I kind of jumped in with two feet early on. And then, of course, as you go up through the ranks, as you assume more levels of responsibility, um, you're watching your higher ranking officers. What decisions are they making? You, but you're also making sure that you're taking care of your people, that they're getting the equipment that they need, the training that they need, that, you know, the, whatever it is you think they need. But that fire, so you walk, you, you breach the house. It's your first fire. Yeah. I mean, it, was it a bad fire? Was it a, how, what, a three alarm? Oh, yeah. It turned into a three, it went into a three alarm fire. So that meant there were, there were probably in excess of 20 fire companies there. Uh, it was a corner building. It was, as I said, a mattress store, which is tremendous amount of smoke to begin with. And then there were apartments above that. A lot store. of pressure on you. Two a lot of pressure on you. Uh, yes, of course. Um, and um, but it all went well. I mean, you know, he had good good people. They got the fire out on the first floor. We got the people out on the. I was on the second floor above the fire, so we got the people out. And uh, cleaned up. I mean, that's kind of what we did. So that went well that first day, yeah. and I'm very grateful it did. When when did it talk about when it did not go well, and how did you? What did you learn from it? And and how 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 you took those? You know those, as you said, sometimes we learn the, the most from failures, and how we get back up. What what was a moment when it did not go well? How did you handle it, either as a line firefighter or as a manager or a catch? You know a in a managing role? Brad, the first, uh, I was a deputy chief, a deputy fire chief. So I was in charge of the whole city on a shift. And uh, we had a fire during a blizzard. And an off-duty firefighter was on the corner with his son watching the fire. And we needed help raising a ladder because of the snow. I ordered him to help those firefighters. They slipped in the snow with the ladder, hit a 13,000-volt power line, and two of them were killed right in front of me. The boy saw his father get killed. And um, so, you know, that was a very, very bad day in, in the fire service. But what I had to keep in mind is we had to get those men, both men, had to get those men emergency medical care. One of them uh, survived. Both of them were killed. But the other one, one resuscitated. Uh, the other never did. The boy, the man that was off duty. But I still had a fire on my hands. There was still a burning building. There was still... Uh, things that I had to do. I don't know where I got the strength that day. I don't know where I got the sense of mind. But How old were you? At the time, I was uh, 43 years old. Okay. Was that your first challenge, would you say? It was my biggest. Uh, biggest. First. Okay. I, I probably would be stretched to uh, think of the first. Usually the first okay. are personnel issues. You know, people yeah. trying to see if you're really going to be a, a good officer or not. Um, 
those are the kinds of things that you um, well, I want to get into that yeah. today too. But so how did you get through that day? Um, well, I, I wanted to make sure that the other firefighters were safe. Um, afterwards, I sat down, I got a couple of key leaders in the fire department together, and I wanted to make sure that I had documented everything so that this firefighter's family would get the survivor benefits that they so deserved. Uh, and then to make sure that we had everything documented because I knew that there were going to be investigations, there were going to be court cases, there were going to be, you know, a whole host of different things, uh, investigations by the state that, um, that I wanted to make sure I had to document it before, you know, your mind gets fuzzy. I knew I was going to have mm -hmm. three days of uh, funeral services, those kinds of things that, I, that we still had to deal with. How do you, how does, how does someone prepare you for that? They don't. Yeah, they don't. And um, what has always served me well, and it probably goes back to my time as a, as a radio operator in the infantry, you've got to be a calm person. You've got to learn how to control your emotions. Um, when it's a dangerous situation, I tell people, my blood pressure goes down to about 10 and my pulse goes down to about four because that's the only way that you can rationally think. If you lose control of yourself, if your emotions overtake your brain, or if your heart overtakes your brain, you're no good to yourself and you're no good, goodness, you're no good to anyone else. No one is going to follow a leader that can't control themselves. You know, if you can't control yourself, you can't control the situation, you can't control an emergency, and you certainly can't control uh, anyone else. How have you evolved, you know, and I'm listening to you, as you are describing these emotions. And I saw some of these emotions during Hurricane Katrina. Um, I know they were there, I mean, throughout your career. Um, but I'll say from what I saw, you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of unpredictable situations as there always are with events. Um, you know, you were asked to, to go down, you know, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, I don't want to mistell the story, but you were asked to go down. We had a lot of heroes that day. Uh, all over the country from whether it's uh, volunteer or, or career firefighters that came down, right, and wanted to help. And a lot of times when you have disasters, especially catastrophic ones, some, sometimes help there, – there's never too much help, but if it's not organized properly, it, it could lead to worse things. And we, we saw that with the Boston bombings uh, where everyone wanted to help in Boston because it's such a close-knit city. But they, the FBI and, and state and local officials said, hey, we need to – we have prearranged relationships. They use the – um, the Dulles airport and the mass port, and they had relationships where they could quickly piece together the investigation. And it was really a, a, a success story up there uh, to how fast they could respond. But on, you know, different crisis, Hurricane Katrina, you were called to come down um, to just help organize the chaos. It was, I would say it's positive chaos because people wanted to come down to help, but it was chaos. And there was also, also people taking advantage of the situation, taking advantage of FEMA, you know, it's all over the news, but very, very quickly, how did you, you got the call, which many, many crisis leaders do. Hey, I need you to go fix something. Uh, so whether it's Hurricane Katrina or it was another event, what are some like key things that you've taken away, whether it was last year or before you left or last couple of years, you know, what are, what are some key things that you focus on when you're getting sent into a crisis, either by a political official or by your civilian boss that you go in and solve? Like, how do you solve problems is where I'm getting at. I don't know. I can only tell you what's been successful for me. 
and um, I'll pass it along to whomever it might they may find useful. Uh, the first thing you want to do is is to get some ground truth. Uh, God gave you two ears and one mouth, so the worst thing you can do is start barking orders before you get all the information you need. So what what I tried to do and what you saw what we did in Atlanta was I listened to the senior people on the ground, what's going on. And it was very clear in the beginning that there were 4,000 type A first responders who had nothing to do. They weren't being given any orders and they weren't being told what they were going to do. And they were sitting around getting frustrated. They wanted, you know, 50 feet of rope and a Huey and they, they were going to go out and rescue people. So the second thing I had to do is what are my resources to get this situation under control? Um, uh, some of the people I knew of the 4,000, so there might have been about 20 of them that I knew either from the National Fire Academy. So what you, the second thing you want to do is to begin to identify your strategy, what you want to do, and then secondly, delegate the responsibility to other people. You were my executive officer, but I had different people in charge of different parts of that to get people busy doing things. In the meantime, I got back on the horn with the seniors and said, we've got to move these people. Where are we going to move them? And they started to make calls to different places in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida that needed staff and then delegated through. And you were a part of that. And every day, if you recall, you and I sat down and we have a glass of wine or two. And I go over, OK, what did we do? How did we handle this crisis? How did we handle this person? Because a lot of it was dealing with people. The whole thing was dealing with people. And you have to recognize that people's interest in many cases is a self-interest. They're not interested in the mission. They're interested in what's most beneficial to them. So those kinds of people you've got to kind of steer into to doing kinds of things. And then, of course, there's going to be problems. That's why they put you responsible. That's why you're in charge. You know, if you think that once you're in charge that the clouds are going to part and the cherubs are going to sing and it's going to be sunshine, lollipops and rainbows, you don't have a clue. You know, your job is dealing with problems. Your job is managing people, leading people. And um, so you're going to have problems. So we have we have five minutes left. Unfortunately, this is going way too fast for the amount of information I want to share with the folks, but, <laughs> um, but so we're going to have some, we're going to have some quick rounds, uh, quick one minute rounds. So in, in one minute, describe a situation where you could not fix something. You thought you could, you went down there and you were blamed for it maybe. Um, or maybe if you were not blamed for it in your career, you're, you're someone, you know, was, and how do you get out of that? I've always found one thing works all the time. This is my fault. I take full responsibility and I'm going to do what I can to fix it. Now, I'll give you just a quick one minute example. Student, when I was a superintendent of the National Fire Academy, a student, I'd visit a class and a student would tell me their room was dirty when they checked in. The first thing I said was, that's my fault. I'm sorry. I'm going to go out and make a phone call. And when you go back to the room this afternoon, you're going to be able to do surgery in it. But if you start backpedaling, if you start blaming this or that or the other thing, you're never going to get it fixed. Take full responsibility right up front. 
no one else, all my fault, and it'll all go away. Then you can fix it. Worst boss, how did you deal with it? Um, and, and and how did it make you a better leader? Your worst boss is learn from everything that they do wrong. Keep a notebook of things that they do wrong so that you don't do it, so that you learn. Um, it's difficult. Uh, it's very difficult. But you can grow by learning. We're going we're gonna to pivot real quick. We're going to pivot toward the commission report um, that we produced that you were an expert um, witness to and, and contribute to. Um, and I think without your help, we would have not it would have not been as comprehensive. Um, this report um, was released publicly. So please check out the HCMA, DCHCMA website uh, for this report. And this report was on mass care, ESF 14 for all you FEMA aficionados out there. Um, mass care is, is, is a lot of things, but it's really, it's really evacuating people from a disaster, putting them up, whether it's congregate, non-congregate shelter, feeding them, giving them medicine, and then returning them into uh, the place they came from. It's a very high-level description. We looked at best practices nationally. We quick came away with some commonalities. We learned from major cities. So we hit California, Florida, um, uh, Arizona, Washington State, et cetera. Um, what we, we saw a couple things, and we did not need to do a poll to find this. But what we do know is that this country, we all are dealing with simultaneous events right now something that you have gone through, Dr. O'Neill, in your time. How do you deal with simultaneous – the report which we found was everyone's dealing with, with uh, simultaneous events terribly. It's not surprising. I think some cities are dealing with it better, depending on what the third and fourth event is going on, whether it's the First Amendment marches. How do you deal with – well, I, I want to ask you, but I also want to talk about the report in the in limited time we have. Um, we saw a couple things. We saw um, – we saw sheltering that needs to be fixed, mass care sheltering. Uh, we saw better partnerships needed. We saw extra support, the, the state and local governments, the typical non-governmental response, such as American Red Cross was overwhelmed. Um, they had to withdraw. They had to set new policies because they could not handle it all, and, and rightly so. Um, what is some of your advice for uh, as we go forward, we're going to see more events in, in greater frequency and scale as we have been, how do cities that have a low budget or, or need to do more with less, how do they face these events? If you were going to advise an emergency manager today uh, or HCMA official around the country, what would two things, two pieces of advice give them? Um, one, one quick piece of advice would be um, that they can, they practice and they drill on their emergency plan, which is good. But typically okay. what happens to them is beyond the realm of what could happen. They never imagine. If you ask somebody in New York City or Washington, D.C. on September 10th, 2001, would a plane ever crash into the Pentagon, would a plane simultaneously crash into the two World Trade Center buildings and collapse them? What do you think they would have said on September 10th? That'll never happen. So you've got to be prepared to think about what might happen. And you need to be thinking about how you're going to deal with that. The challenge that we're facing right now is it's the first time in the history of our nation where we faced a 50-state common disaster called COVID. And we're all looking for the same thing. 
Now, agree or disagree, I don't want to get into politics right now, but the federal government did not take a leadership role early on in that disaster. And the, this, the message to the states were, you were on your own. Now, not only were the states on their own, but the industry industries were on their own. So now you had state and local governments, hospitals, businesses, all competing for the same resources at the same time. Why? Because no one could imagine that that could happen here. So uh, try, my advice or to do is try to imagine the unimaginable. Now, you're not ever going to have the resources to deal with it, but what you should do is start to build your index file of who to call and where to find them. Well, well said. Uh, and I know we could have used some of that advice, uh, which was done, but not the level I think you described in the early days of Katrina. Uh, it was done in Sandy because everyone had their own business cards beforehand. And, you know, there was some luck where Sandy missed certain parts of the East Coast. But um, final question for today. Um, if you could go back and tell your 20-year-old self at the start of your professional and personal journey, you know, two things you learned through your 40-year-old 40, 40 career, what would you, what would they be? The most important thing to develop is emotional intelligence. Uh, your ability to get along with people and your ability to listen to uh, people when they come to you with advice or seeking advice. Um, listening is probably a, the skill set that we need to develop the most. Um, the second is that when people leave you, even if you're in charge, even if it's a crisis situation, remember the words of uh, the poet Maya Angelou when she said that people may remember what you said and they may remember what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. So my, my biggest skill or the biggest piece of advice would be to develop your interpersonal skills and your emotional intelligence for decision-making. And the second would be technical skills and technical knowledge constantly evolve. And for you to stay on top of your game, you've got to remain constantly vigilant about learning, whether that's skills and training or knowledge and education. Well, I'll tell you, I, I wish we could keep going. I can't thank you enough, Dr. Neal, for all the service that you have um, given to this country. We're going through a, a crisis right now. It's not a matter if, but when another crisis emerges. And I think, uh, you know, we're just lucky to have folks like yourself uh, that were on the front lines that still are in, in a mentoring capacity. Um, audience, continue to stay safe out there. Wear your masks. Please join us next time for another exciting episode of HCMA's Off the Record. This podcast is brought to you by Muriel Bowser, Mayor of Washington, D.C., and the District of Columbia Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency.